Welcome to Wine Country Women with Michelle Mandreau, the podcast for wine enthusiasts who are curious not only about what goes in the bottle, but the remarkable women who make these distinctive winemaking regions so special. Each week, Michelle introduces you to a prominent woman and takes a peek inside her life. Welcome to today's Wine Country Women podcast. I'm Michelle Mandreau, and I'm talking to Kelly White, the Director of Education of the Wine Center at Meadowood Estate. Kelly. Hi. So much fun to be here with you at, we're actually at the Napa Valley Reserve, a really special spot. Yes, thank you for coming all this way. It's so nice to see you. This is fun. You and I actually don't know each other super well, but we're familiar, I'd say. But now everybody's going to get a crash course on everything Kelly White. (laughs) (laughs) So let's dive right in. Because you're pretty fascinating. You have an impressive resume. Thank you very much. You are an accomplished psalm. You worked at Veritas in New York City. Mm -hmm. You were at Press in St. Helena. In 2013, Food and Wine ranked you one of the top 10 psalms in the country. Thank you. Fast forward 2015, you were the author of a pretty hefty book, (laughs) The Napa Valley Then and Now. Let's talk about that briefly Okay. before we talk about where you are today. What inspired you to write that very big book? (laughs) Because it is a big book. Uh, I think it was a little bit of um, naivete. And then also, I just, I wanted to have that book. I think things are different now in the media landscape. But back in 2010, when I moved to Napa Valley um, with my uh, now husband, I didn't necessarily know so much about Napa Valley wines. And you know, there was the occasional website with the occasional information, right? The Napa Valley Vintners has a good website with like basic Appalachian facts and, you know, some over, you know, overarching statistics and things like that. And then there were critical websites that had, you know, reviews of vintages and things like that. But I I really wanted something a little bit more that I could really sink my teeth into. And I kind of grew up fancy myself a little bit of an academic and I grew up in the wine career just just digesting these you know big books on regions and that's how I would get to know a place usually before I even ever stepped foot in the place and so I was surprised that a book like that didn't exist on Napa and then when we got out here and actually started running the wine program at Press which was an all Napa wine list that we built up to be a very deep list people would ask me all kinds of questions like oh who made you know the 92 Colgan or what vin- where is this vineyard you know such and such vineyard and and things like that and you know the if I didn't know my first thought would be to go to the winery website but at a lot of the Napa Valley wineries, at least back then, website were very, let's just say, romantic and atmospheric and not necessarily information driven, which is fine. I think I've I've kind of come full circle to a point in my career where I, I care less about bricks and percentage of new oak and I'm more interested in the story. But nonetheless, there are still people that are interested in those sorts of facts and they weren't um, transparent. And so I just started to gather them all for my own information and to make me better at my job. And then at some point it kind of occurred to me to put it into a book. And I got um, the owner of the restaurant, Leslie Rudd's buy-in, and he supported my uh, desire to self-publish. And 
you know, it took five years to write and five years to pay Leslie back. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Leslie was an amazing man and a great supporter of people with great ideas. So, you know, it's wonderful that he embraced yours. Yeah, he was he was always very loving to me and I miss him very much. Let's rewind for one second. How did you get the wine bug? When did you say, gosh, I really love this this wine world? Well, I didn't, I don't have like a cool, um, I don't have like a cool Coors Light or Boone's Farm story. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not, I wasn't ever one of those, you know, quote unquote fun people. So I, I didn't drink at all. And I come from a family that, that doesn't drink wine. Typically they do now, you know, right. they've been converted, but, but certainly growing up, they didn't. And I went to school uh, and I went to college to study neuroscience and ended up studying art history and definitely was not interested in wine. But the summer after I turned 21, I was also changing majors. And so I, I just didn't have like a built-in internship situation. I was in a moment of kind of reimagining my future. And so, but I needed to support myself that summer and I was going to school outside Boston And I just kind of randomly walked by a wine shop in Beacon Hill that happened to be hiring. And it was a cute little boutique store. And I went in and introduced myself. And I, you know, I said, I don't, I don't drink and I don't know anything about wine. But I was like, really cute 21 year old (laughs) girl. And they were like, Oh, sure, you're hired. So no problem. So I got that job. And, um, and I found I really liked wine. And I came at it from a very serious, I, I'm all about job performance, right? I want that good review. I want that the those uh, marks on my well, the GPA, right? right? So I started to read. I started to spend more and more of my paycheck on wine, um, and I just I got really into it. I liked immediately. I liked the wine itself, but but even more so, I liked just the ways in which wine intersected with culture and the humanities because I was kind of transitioning from hardcore scientific research and study to the fine arts right and I was just kind of leaving one side of my brain behind and picking up this other side and I was just it was just a really kind of fertile moment in my imagination and wine just sort of tapped into all of it right the the science of it is there the the fine art is certainly there but then there's also the 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 travel and the language and the history and uh, the mystery and all that stuff and and it was just really literally and figuratively intoxicating and um so after college I Kind of tried to make it work in the art world, um, moved down to Marfa and worked at the Chinati Foundation, got a job at the Rose Art Museum, worked at a Chinese art gallery in the south end of Boston. But because those jobs historically pay so poorly, um, I needed to keep up my job at the wine shop after hours um, just to support myself. And so at a certain point, I was just like, why am I, what am I doing here? You know, this, this wine stuff is increasingly my passion and it's a much better way to make a living. And I just kind of surrendered at some point and uh, went, went, went in with both feet. Well, it served you well. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when food and wine ranks you one of the top 10 in the country, I mean, is there... Anything else to be said, really? Oh, well, thank you. No, that was a huge unexpected honor. And and what's been actually the most fun about that is, I mean, that was very cool and and very sweet and a great recognition. But once you kind of achieve that, then each year you're tapped to nominate somebody for that. 
And that's been one of the most fun things is, you know, as I meet young sommeliers and I, you know, travel around and, 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 and find what's passionate to them and see these wine programs. And then, you know, that time I get that email, you know, once a year from Food and Wine asking for nominations. And it's, it's really fun to throw somebody else's name in the hat because it, it really is such an, a remarkable honor that I love to, to pass that forward. And to be, to participate in and. Your other big accomplishment is the book that we spoke about. You worked as a senior staff writer for Guildsome. Yes, I did. So when That's I kind of cool, yeah, it was great. I loved that job. Um, it was wonderful. I loved working with the trade. Um, you know, tapping back into young sommeliers and 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 and, and doing education. I really enjoyed it. That was, you know, two and a half, three years of my life. That was great. Uh, but then this opportunity came up, and I, I could hardly say no. So let's talk about this opportunity. What are you charged with? What What are you going to do here at Meadowood? So I am in charge of basically wine education for guests uh, and members at Meadowood and then members at the Napa Valley Reserve. And so, you know, that education... Uh, has taken a lot of forms. I got started right before the pandemic. So the original idea was, you know, much more of an emphasis on kind of classes, right? The classic educational model. And that's still a huge part of what I'm doing. Um, and I, and I have a partner in that, a, a young woman named Sarah Bray, who's delightful to work with. And she and I are a team of two and, and we do this together. And, um, and that's a huge part of it, but because of the pandemic and, and then the fires and everything, you know, we had to transition like so many other people in the wine industry and other industries to a more virtual kind of footprint. So, um, so we do in-person classes, virtual classes. We've done webinars. We've uh, recorded educational videos. We've written newsletters. We, you know, the idea is um, that we want to provide wine education to the people that are here because we're presuming that they have a baseline interest in wine, right? That's why so many people come to Napa Valley. Um, but we don't want it to be fact-driven, pedantic, clinical boring. The idea is to make other people as excited about wine and Napa Valley as, as we are. So the education is based in Napa Valley wines um, because that's, you know, we're here. That's what we're doing. But also um, it's about these kind of cultural tendrils that inter interact with wine and kind of wrap around wine. And so we have a class that Sarah developed um, because she has a background in the, in the fine arts as well um, called The Art of the Label, which, you know, talks about the history of the intersection of fine wine and fine art. And it's funny because, you know, I had mentioned I had a brief experience working in the art world, and I, I didn't discover that intersection until I went to the wine world because all of the galleries and museums I worked at would serve just the worst wine at the gallery openings. <laughs> I mean, it would be just the grossest. Probably the cheapest, Yeah, right? the cheapest, <laughs> grossest, thickest Chardonnay with as many ice cubes, you know, as you could stuff in it. And, and, and it always was such a disconnect to me because, you know, you would think that if you were sensitive and well-versed uh, in, in one, <laughs> yeah, in one of the aesthetic 
realms, you would that would sort of echo to the other ones as well. And I didn't find that to be the case, but but that nonetheless, there are you know spheres in which they do overlap, and so we 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 focus on those wines and those brands, and then we have another class called Wine and War, which is really fun and honestly endless. And um, you know, we 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 talk about you know the history of the Civil War here and the Mexican American War on the California wine industry and how that kind of shook out and informed the path of the wine industry going forward and then uh, Europe is obviously replete with stories where vineyards became battlegrounds and things like that and not just um, not just Europe but also um, Lebanon South Africa and you know just honestly all countries have known war right and most countries make some wine and so there's just endless stories to tap into and, and that's been and that's been really fun and well and that's such a unusual twist too yeah. Yes. So I'm sure that that intrigues people enough to want to participate and tune in. Well, I hope so. You know, I mean, I think sometimes like we, we sometimes the word history can be a little deflating to people. Think, oh, I don't want to learn history. Um, but I think fundamentally it's a wine tasting, mm-hmm. first of all, just with like a little bit of extra. Right. And and we try to make it not too you know, dour. But at the same time, you know, that's that that was such a war is is such a mover of of culture. You know, it's like a flood uh, on people. And, you know, just look at the history of Alsace and the way that flip flopping between France and Germany has imprinted on the wine region there. It's it's really it's an interesting, interesting angle taking this path to kind of make things more contemporary to kind of provide a fresh new perspective to wine exactly exactly um um, one of the things that we talk a lot about with people is um is the language of wine and how you talk about wine Mm -hmm. because i think you know like i said i feel like honestly it's such a benefit having not come from a wine drinking family because i've been able to see people that I love, you know, how I talk to them about wine, what resonates and what doesn't. And I can tell you what doesn't resonate, which is talking about, you know, raspberries and hints of lemon and things like that. That's just, it just falls flat and cold on a table. And because, you know, those things aren't actually in the wine, right? And if the other person drinking the wine doesn't get those same smells, they feel like something's wrong with them and now they don't want to play anymore, you know? And so, so then that's just a, that's just a road to nowhere. So if you can find another way to engage that person in discussing wines in a way that resonates with them, you'll have a better way of getting them excited about it. For example, we taught a class, Sarah and I together, where the woman was a, a professional skier. She was a competitive skier. And so, you know, sometimes in the wine industry, we talk about a wine having like energy or personality, mm-hmm. right? A wine is serious or it's lighthearted right. or, you know, something in between. So Sarah started describing the wine in terms of skiing. Like this is just like deep snow, perfect weather, like easy, smooth gliding. And another wine is being like moguls, right? Kind of fast moving and 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 bumpy and textured and exciting and it penetrated and it resonated and it spoke to this person and right. it got she, them excited about it. She could relate to it. Exactly. And you right. can talk to, about wine in terms of cars, right? Like right. a reliable Volvo, right? <laughs> is a certain type of wine, like right. a, like a, a great BMW, like a well engineered German car. That's like comfortable, but still performance oriented mm-hmm. is another type of wine. And then a Ferrari is like another yeah. type of wine. So it's endlessly fascinating. And I think it doesn't need to be, be pretentious and it doesn't need to be 
a grocery shopping list every time you talk right. about a wine. I love it because I think that making it fun and more relatable and not just fruits and vegetables and spices is a better way to go. Yeah, and and there's all this there's all this stuff now too at this moment in in time in wine about you know, cultural sensitivity and widening the lens. And, you know, if you have, we, when we do that grocery list thing, you're presupposing mm-hmm. an American or a European, you know, food reference. Um, and that's not always the case. I feel like tasty notes, I mean, are designed to sell the wine, right? For sure. For sure. <laughs> so, the mocha and the cherry. No, you're absolutely right. And the thing is, I mean, I'm not saying that we should toss that kind of talk out the window entirely because, you know, as a trained sommelier, Like, it's kind of exciting to pick out, you know, more obscure smells or flavors Mm -hmm. out of a wine. And and that is a fun aha moment. And if you can legitimately lead someone to actually smelling chamomile in an e-cam, you know, or a sauterne, like, that's kind of cool that you're like, oh, yeah, this tea that I love, I smell it here, I really smell it. And that's exciting. It's a point of entry. Like, if it works, it's great. My fear is that, you know, when it doesn't work, it's alienating. So... I completely agree with you. You are planting a seed. You just got to keep watering it. Yes. What do you think sets Napa Valley apart from other wine regions? What makes it so special? Why? Well, In your opinion. That's a great question that probably requires a longer podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a lot that's special here. Um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting um, moving here from New York And, you know, being, you know, kind of living in that New Yorker poster, right? The classic one where it's like the whole world, it's a map of the world, but it's just New York. And then there's the Hudson River and like New Jersey, like a little bit. I kind of had that mentality moving here. And I was surprised to find out how much Napa really was sort of the center of the wine industry west. You know, it was like there's so many beyond the wonderful producers a lot of the writers live here. A lot of the magazines are based here. Some of the major distributors and importer, like Wilson Daniels, you know, these places are, are based out here. Um, the top collectors travel here. You know, the same people that come to New York City, that go to Hong Kong, that eat in the best restaurants, they're here too. Um, and because of, like, the incredible chef community. So, the first of all, just the community around wine is extraordinary and then there's the wine itself you know and I'm a big fan of Napa Valley wines in general and I'm also a big fan of the wine growing community here um, especially because having come from that sort of snobbish sommelier background where I think you know most like 25 year old east coast sommeliers probably think that Napa is just a you know a place where you know, you go to Michelin star restaurants and drink expensive wine and they don't know that it's actually fundamentally an agricultural community. And I've had such wonderful community here and the kind of uplifting and community building moments every day, but also surrounding some of the more kind of tragic moments, like first the earthquake and then the 17 fires and then the 20 fire and, you know, on and on and on. And seeing this community rally together and help each other, and it's just wonderful. It's an amazing community. Yeah. It, it really does come together and support one another in, in those times of need. Yeah, and then and then to you know keep kind of going from the macro to the micro, I just think also just the physical place is so amazing. You know, one of the things that I say a lot when I'm lecturing about Napa Valley is that, you know, I'll put up a picture of Napa Valley and I'll say, you know, 
first of all, you know, great wine is made in beautiful places. This is a well-worn trope, but it's true. And Napa's undeniably beautiful. That's that's also true. But there's just so much variation here. It's amazing. It's such a small place. And in this tiny little grape-growing agricultural community, you have two different mountain ranges, you know, going from sea level to almost 3,000 feet above sea level with you know, vineyards, you know, at every kind of point along the way, you know, vineyards facing north, south, east, west, you know, along that spectrum, the alluvial fans, the valley floor, all the crazy different soils, the fog, you know, the climatic differences from north to south. And then when you go up in elevation and from east to west, it's just, it's really extraordinary. And it's, it's just a, it's intense. It's a lot of layers of information and different variables in a really small place and it just kind of screams complexity and i think you know when you taste wines that honor that that express that it's thrilling and um and so that's that's another i think key element that's just a little bit of what makes it so special yeah exactly we're just scratching the The surface. surface before we move on to your personal life i want to ask what do you believe is a top moment in your career at this point? At this point, I really like, to be honest, I like where I am. You know, I think I've come at the wine industry from a lot of different angles. So we talked about my restaurant time and my time as a writer. Um, But, you know, prior to that, I worked in retail. I worked in wholesale. I, you know, worked for an importer. I, you know, just I've done production. I've done everything. And what I've found that I love most of all is, is education. And I think that actually getting somebody excited and kind of feeling like I don't want to be too grandiose or give myself too much credit, but like feeling like maybe for a few minutes you made somebody's day or you taught them something new in a way that was exciting to them or you just sort of unlocked something in their brain about wine and and, because wine is just fundamentally about, you know, the enjoyment of life, right? And so to tap into that and to enhance that, in someone and to watch it happen is amazing you know that was I was never a dyed in the wool restaurant person that was not my forever job Um, but the best part of that job was seeing somebody enjoy something that you'd given to them and education for me is like that on steroids it's 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 really it can be it's so satisfying and so I would say that I'm exactly where I want to be you know well then where will you go just I'm just gonna hang out here. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Learn more about the women who live in wine country when you purchase one of our lifestyle books at winecountrywomen.com. Well, let's move on to your personal life. Now I'm scared. <laughs> Don't be frightened. You are from Massachusetts. Yes. But as you mentioned, two thousand and ten you moved to the Napa Valley. So where do you live in the Napa Valley? I live in a little neighborhood called Congress Valley. Okay. What town? I'm not looking oh. for your neighborhood. Oh, sorry. <laughs> My address is, uh, I know I live in uh, Napa. Okay. You live <laughs> in the town of Napa. <laughs> How did you choose Napa? You could have lived anywhere in the valley. How did you choose the town of Napa? I love Napa's weather, but I am transparent redhead and so I need that little extra um, boost of fog cover (laughs) just just you know just to keep myself healthy so I like you know I like the I like the temperature in Napa and also I feel like Napa 
Napa is the town, the city, whatever you want to call it, uh, in the 11 plus years that I've lived here has really blossomed into something that's like pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, like now you can walk to things and there's more restaurant options than there used to be. Oh, and sure. It feels a little bit more dynamic. And so the part of me that still identifies as like a city person is happy to have that energy. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. It, it's finally come into its own. I yeah. Think. Or is coming into its own, I guess. If we took a step inside your house, (laughs) what would we see? What is your decorating style? I know you have a new little one, so it might be slightly different. Yeah, I would say I would define my decorating style as um, furniture that's mortally dangerous to children. So far, that (laughs) seems to be the stylistic theme. (laughs) And it's like unbelievable to me. My husband and I both really like furniture, actually. Mm -hmm. And we've we've collected furniture and home good items as we've traveled, and so it, everything is a bit different. Like not it nothing. There's no showroom floor feeling. So I, I like to think that it has a lot of character. We have an orange velvet couch that we bought in Paris, and you know these sort of like things like that. But we also both really like metal furniture. And so you're right. It's not child. It's not, it's not a good look for kids. And you know, the best part is, is that we, my husband, um, where he works, a big Douglas fir tree had fallen five years ago. And so it just kind of perfectly seasoned. And so he happened to be working up there when they were milling it and they just gave us a giant slab. So he built this beautiful table, redwood table, and we needed chairs for it. And so we found these, kind of ivory metal chairs that have these sharp points all over them and I was fully pregnant when we bought them and it never occurred to either of us (laughs) that maybe that was not the best idea and so now we just live in fear of these chairs and this baby and it's just this really game of referee that we play constantly I think you need to move the chairs out of the room for a while temporarily I (laughs) (laughs) I know with a little one you probably don't have a lot of time to relax but when you do get to relax (laughs) where do you go well you know I used to have a lot more hobbies um and I used to play a lot of music and find that very relaxing um at some point the guitar kind of felt unwieldy so I took up the ukulele but even now it's unrealistic to find time to play that or or the energy and so It sounds like such a downgrade, um, but the way I relax now is by reading. Being in education and being kind of a hungry mind in general about the wine industry, I read way too much wine stuff, and I don't um, read enough fiction or nonfiction outside of the wine space. And so, and podcasts don't count. So, um, so no offense, but I, you know, I listen to podcasts that are not about wine, but I feel like it's not the same thing as sitting down and reading a book. So I recently joined a book club that I've yet to attend, (laughs) but I diligently attempt to read the books and it feels very satisfying and very relaxing and it feels it does feel like food you know when you are feeding part of your mind I am sorry to say that I fear I might be one of your people I tend to read for purpose and not for pleasure I know so but once I find that book for pleasure I I do like it but I have a hard time giving into that Is there something that people might be surprised to learn about you? Something that you did in your, in your past, um, I don't know, childhood that you did that people don't 
readily know about? Or do you skydive? Do you rappel? I don't know. Something crazy. I mean, I guess I would probably lean into the the music thing a little bit. I was never an accomplished um, player of guitar, but I was enthusiastic. And so I was in a lot of bands. And I was in a lot of weird bands. So when I was... I started playing in bands when I was 13. And I started... It was in a band called Spork. And we were just, we were just almost non-musical. We had such little talent. And I, <laughs> I was playing the guitar until, until I was working as a babysitter at the time. And I accidentally sliced the top off of one of my fret fingers. It grew back. But I, but it, it briefly was, rendered me unable to play keyboard because I, I mean, uh, guitar because I had this big bandage. So I just switched to the keyboard right before our big show. And I didn't know how to play that either. So that, that worked out. But then from there, I got a little bit better and I played in, bands more and more seriously in college and then after college and then I was in a band that was the most serious of them all which was called the Saturday Saints and we actually we sold out the knitting factory in New York City like a million years ago and and, what kind of music did you play um I mostly played in um kind of like uh it's a bit embarrassing but like metal and hardcore bands for the most part um (laughs) but this band was more uh kind of like pop driven so myself and two other girls, we sang in three-part harmonies, and then I played guitar, one of the girls played drums, the other girl played keyboards, and then we had like sort of two token men that played bass and lead guitar, and it was cute. For a couple of years, we recorded a, a, an album and then a live album, and it, you know, it, was, um, it was a moment in time. Okay, you heard it here, everybody. <laughs> We're in wine country. Yes. I have to ask. What do you like to drink at home? And it doesn't have to be wine. Well, that's good because the answer is gin. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a favorite gin? Um, Yeah, you know, we have a favorite gin. It's a little bit on the nerdy side, but there's a a producer called Reset Bauer in Austria (laughs) who um, makes very intense eau de vies, like out of bizarre ingredients like ginger and thing and things without a lot of sugar so it requires a lot of raw ingredients and the product is very refined and that's his sort of whole thing um but then he also randomly makes a gin as well and it's very good it's called blue gin uh, and it's imported by skernick and so you can find it you can find it in california now and um and so we, we drink a fair amount of that uh we drink a fair amount of gin i would say um my husband is also in the wine industry. He was a sommelier for a long time. We worked together at press, and now he makes wine. And I just, I, I don't know. We, we, we drink a lot of local wines. We have mm-hmm. a lot of friends that are in the wine industry. We're always trading wines. And, and you know, one of the things that I've loved about living in wine country, you know, as opposed to kind of working in the city as a sommelier is, you become actual friends with winemakers and when you drink their wine, you know, it reminds you of your friend and it's this, this kind of added layer to the experience. It's another kind of texture in the tapestry of what wine brings to your life. And so I, it's really fun and, you know, part of the lifestyle. Here. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful part of the lifestyle. Absolutely. I wanted to ask if you have had a memorable trip that you can share a memorable trip. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're all memorable. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a standout one? That's a great question. I'm going to need to think about that for a second because I want to give a good answer. Yeah. I mean, I would say, so I got married five years ago and we went on a honeymoon to Spain. 
and it was a really intense honeymoon. So we spent almost a month in Spain, a little over three weeks, and I was still uh, writing for Guildsum at the time. So I did my one of my normal like hustles where I said, okay, well, if I fly myself there, will you pay to extend my trip so that I can write about these following, you know, Spanish wine regions? And so it was kind of, it was half honeymoon, half work. And um, we flew into Barcelona and we uh, spent some time in Barcelona and then we spent some time uh, on the North Coast, which was really beautiful. Drove across to the Basque country of Spain. We spent a bunch of time in the um, Basque country of Spain and we actually uh, built our whole honeymoon around a dinner reservation at Eshtabari, which was just amazing. It's a great, really great restaurant. And then from there, we kind of did a little dip and we went down um and just toward vega sicilia and then we drove to valencia and spent time in valencia and then we flew to the canary islands yeah and we spent about a week in the canary islands stomping around on these crazy volcanic islands that are actually erupting now as we speak um checking out the really funky wine industry and it was just it was just great it was super great we ate a ton basically everything we saw and had a wonderful time Great honeymoon. Yeah, not Even bad. Even though you had to work a little. <laughs> I like to work. Wine, the wine industry, it's not so bad. It's, it isn't. It's, it's pretty fun. Well, Kelly, on that note, we're going to wrap things up with five quick questions. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. What kind of car do you drive? I drive a Volkswagen GTI. Okay. What's your favorite flower? Uh, my favorite flower is... I know the answer to this. <laughs> I'm sure you do. Sorry. I love ranunculus. The ranunculus flower is really is really my favorite, but I'm also just a fan of just simple daisies. Okay. What's your favorite holiday? I love Christmas. Who's your favorite actor? Oh, wow. Favorite or hottest? <laughs> uh, well, couldn't it be both? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a... I'm just being silly. Um, whoosh, my favorite. One of your favorite. How about one of your favorite? One of my favorite actors is Helen Mirren. Hmm, good choice. And what are some things in your nightstand? In my nightstand, as, aside from pacifiers <laughs> uh, and the book that I'm trying to read for book club, which I probably won't be able to go to again, on my nightstand, I'm definitely a, a diva when I sleep. I have to like basically put myself in a sensor, state of sensory deprivation. So I have like, a series of, in, of increasingly intense eye patches and earplugs uh, on my nightstand and yeah, and a good book. Okay. Kelly, <laughs> you are incredible. And oh, this has been so much fun. Thank you. Thank you. It was fun for me, too. I appreciate it. Visit winecountrywomen.com to join our exclusive list so you can be the first to learn about upcoming offers and events. Grab a glass and join us next week for a new edition of Wine Country Women. <laughs>